y'all so much for sharing that. That was beautiful. And if you're not familiar with that song, uh, please look that up, especially the, the lyrics to End the Bleak Midwinter, because it really is all about what I'm going to be preaching about today. And that's that what Jesus wants most from us is our heart, for us to give him our heart. Throughout this Advent season, uh, our devotionals and our worship services has all been about God's promise long ago to bring a Savior to us and how we respond in faith and in service to that promise. That's what we've really focused on. And we've seen how Zechariah and Elizabeth and then Mary and Joseph had to put their faith and trust in God's promise that He could do the impossible through them and how they served Jesus by preparing for His arrival. Well, today we're going to shift our focus to the, the, the angels and the shepherds and especially the wise men to look at their response to what God was doing in the world as they came to worship the newborn king. You know, worship is the ultimate response to a faithful, holy, loving God and His redemptive work in the world. Worship is our response to that. And, and, and really that's what worship is all about. It's not just an activity we do. It's not just a, an event that we plan for on Sunday mornings. Worship is a way of life. Worship is something that we should be doing every single day. And worship, true worship, is always a response to who God is and what God has done. In fact, we try to structure our worship services here around this rhythm of God's revelation and our response. God's revelation and our response. We hear God's revelation. God speaks to us. He reveals Himself to us through, through Scripture, through the sermon, even through songs like we've heard uh, from the instrumentalists in the choir this morning, and then we respond. We answer back through singing, through praying, through actively listening to the message, through giving our tithes and offerings, and of course, through obediently responding to God's prompting during the invitation. God reveals Himself, and we respond. God tells us, I love you, and we respond, we love you, Lord. God tells us how amazing He is, and we Answer, yes, you are amazing and majestic and glorious. That's the pattern of worship. And if you don't find yourself prompted and driven to respond to God in worship and adoration, you're not experiencing the presence of God. Because when we experience the presence of God, we can't help but give Him worship. It's a natural response to His majesty, to His holiness, to His glory, His unending faithfulness, and His love. We were made to worship. We are called to worship. What does this English word worship mean? Well, it's based on two other English words, worth and ship. Worth and ship. So to worship someone is to acknowledge, to declare, to express their worthiness. And so as we worship God, we recognize and declare that He is worthy. He's worthy of our thanksgiving. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy... Of our praise. And that brings me to the Magi, the wise men who, who traveled across the Syrian desert to worship the newborn king whose star they saw and followed to Bethlehem. One of my favorite uh, pictures from this time of year, this is from many, many years ago. Um, Abby was maybe four years old and she had her, her little people nativity all set up. How many of you parents have a little people nativity at home, right? These things are ubiquitous and uh, 
And, and I asked her what they all were doing because they were, you know, just all focused in on Jesus. And I said, Abby said, what are they doing? And they said, they're looking at baby Jesus. And I said, well, why are they kind of all crowded in there, you know? I mean, like one wise man, he's laying on his face, you know? I mean, it's, why, why are, they're practically in the manger. Why are they so close? And she looked at me just, you know, like, so they can give Jesus their treasures. And I thought, wow, what a biblical definition of worship. I mean, think about what Matthew said about the wise men in Matthew 2.11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They looked at Jesus. They drew near to Jesus. They humbled themselves and worshipped to Jesus. And then they gave Jesus their gifts. Their treasures. Abby had given us a very biblical, profound definition of worship that when we realize we're in the presence of Jesus, we want to draw near to Jesus. We want to look upon Jesus and we want to give him our treasures. That's worship. We shower the Lord with our praise, with our adoration, our thanksgiving, and our love, our treasures. We worship and pay homage to our Lord and King by placing our lives in his hands, because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. So from local lowly shepherds to these royal wise men from afar to the heavenly host, as we think about the worship that was given that Christmas to the newborn king, I want us to look at some basic truths of worship. Because just as it's easy for the message of Christmas to get lost in the wrapping and the gifts and the trees and the food and the parties throughout the year. It's easy for the, true, for the truth about worship to get lost and covered up in tradition and in music and in our personal preferences. So let's think about the truths about worship today. And the first is that worship is about attitude, not altitude. You say, David, what does that mean? Well, turn with me or look up on the screen to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. Now, a little backstory. This is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And so Jesus and his disciples are hungry. It's midday. Jesus stays by the well. The disciples go into town for food. And this woman comes out to draw water from the well. Jesus asks her for a drink. And she's like, you're a Jewish man. Why are you doing talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And they go back and forth in this exchange that eventually leads to Jesus revealing to her that he knows her backstory. He knows that she's broken. He knows that she's in despair. He knows that her life is a wreck, and he reveals that to her in in detail. And so she says in verse 19, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the Jews and the Samaritans were locked in this fierce worship war over which mountain God preferred his worship to come from. That sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? Sounds pretty silly. I mean, I mean, today we would never 
get caught up in something so petty, would we? I mean, we would never argue over which mountain God would prefer His worship to come from. That would be as silly as saying that God prefers certain instruments over others. Or that God prefers certain music styles over other music styles. I mean, we, we would never quabble over those kinds of things, would we? No. <laughs> Imagine if this happened today, the conversation might go something like this. Jesus, should we sing from hymnals or screams? And Jesus replies, it doesn't matter. There's coming a day when you won't need hymnals or screams. You will sing from your heart. Or what if we said, Jesus, what should we wear in worship? Our Sunday best or a weekday casual? And he says, it doesn't matter. There's coming a day when you will worship in robes of righteousness. Or we might say, Jesus, a choir or a praise team? The organ or the guitar? Gospel music, Gregorian chant, traditional hymns or contemporary? And Jesus says, you know what? I created music. I love all the instruments and styles and the voices. As long as you make joyful noise to the Lord and you do it in spirit and truth, I love the variety of all those sounds. That's the key. It's not about our altitude. It's about our attitude. It's not about our style. It's about our spirit. It's not about our traditions. It's about the truth. That's what matters to God. If we're worshiping God in spirit, that means that His breath fills our lungs. His, His power and energy enlivens our worship so that we worship Him not for ourselves but for His glory. Amen. And to worship in truth means that we worship God as He is, not as we wish Him to be. Amen. And it means that we come to Him in worship as ourselves, just as I am, not the way we wish we were. We come with all of our brokenness, with all of our despair, with all of our doubt. We come to Him in worship. We shouldn't get caught up in the tools that we use in worship, in in the wrapping paper that we put on the gift of worship. Music itself is not worship. It's a way that we can worship. It's a way that God loves for us to worship. But we shouldn't put so much emphasis on styles or songs or instruments. This place is not itself worship. Sitting in your spot in a pew on a Sunday morning at 1045 does not make it worship. Worship is not about our altitude. It's about our attitude. These these elements of worship, the time, the place, the music, the style, the dress, the decorations, those are there to help us. They're there to serve us as we bring our worship to God. It's like the song that Matt Redman wrote, The Heart of Worship. In it, he tells us that if the music fades and all this is stripped away, we can still simply come and worship Jesus because it's all about Him. It's all about Him. And, and what He does long for is more than just a song. The song is not what He requires. He searches much deeper within for what Brings a, what brings greater worth, and that's our very lives. He wants us. He wants us to give Him our heart, as that song, as the ladies play, says. Jesus wants our attitude. He wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. Secondly, worship is about extravagance, not usefulness. It's about extravagance, not usefulness. Uh, there's a, a funny meme that goes around this time every year. I've put that little cartoon up there. It's... Uh, It says, after the three wise men left, the three wiser women arrived. Uh, Fresh diapers, casseroles for the week, and lots of formula. (laughs) 
it's pretty funny because it's so true, right? I mean, I mean, women would think of just these practical things. They would want to be helpful in this kind of way, and, and, and they would think of things that, that we men would not think of. But, but all joking aside, when, when, worship, when we worship, it's not about being practical. It's not about doing something. The gifts the wise men brought, yeah, they may seem extravagant. They may seem impractical to us. You know, what does a baby need with gold? Frankincense or myrrh. I mean, I mean, those are perfumes and, and, and incenses used in worship and burial. You know what? Why would Jesus doesn't? He needs fresh diapers and some formula. You know, that, that's what he needs. But what the wise men brought him were just right because they were extravagant. They were not given to Jesus because of their use, usefulness, but because of the worthiness of the one they were giving it to. Jesus was worthy of these things. Reminds me of another story of extravagant worship that was derided as being wasteful and impractical. And we read about this in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, says that while Jesus and his disciples were in Bethany, they were at the house of Simon the leper. And Jesus was reclining at the table, and a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. So she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The disciples were concerned with practical things. Jesus was concerned with spiritual things. The disciples were focused on the now. Jesus was looking to eternity. They wanted results. Jesus wanted relationship. In our 21st century Western mindset, we're kind of like the disciples here. We, we tend to focus on the end result, the bottom line. We want to know when we come in worship and we invest our time, our energy, our, our resources, we want to know what's the result. What does this get us? What does this accomplish? How is this helpful? And don't misunderstand me. We should be good stewards of God's resources, and there's nothing inherently spiritual about being wasteful. But there's a difference between being wasteful and intentionally being extravagant. The wise men, this woman, were intentionally being extravagant in worshiping Jesus. Jesus says that worshiping Him isn't about producing results. It's not about getting anything from Him for us. It isn't about the bottom line because guess what? Worship isn't about us. Worship isn't for us. It is about and for Jesus. Worship is something we give Him. He is our audience. He is the recipient of our gifts. And it's because He is so amazing, He is so loving, He is so glorious, He deserves nothing less than our best. He deserves to be lavished with extravagant praise and adoration and worship because He has lavished extravagant love on us. He has poured Himself out for us. In a way, I'd even argue that worship should be practical. 
impractical. I'm sorry, it should be over the top. It should be extravagant. The lost world should look at it and think that's wasteful and scold us for it. Worship should be all about bringing our best to Jesus. It's like David when he was commanded by God. He had established Jerusalem as the capital of, of the young Hebrew nation and God spoke to him and told him he needed to go buy this field, this threshing floor, because he needed to move the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to this place. Let God's presence reside in, in that sort of a, a physical way through those things there in Jerusalem. And when David went to the man to buy this, this threshing floor, the man wanted to give it to David. He said, no, 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 no. let me give this to you. And, and I'm going to give you the animals and the wood uh, for you to use in your, in your burnt offerings. And David refused. He refused to receive it as a free gift. He says in 2 Samuel 24, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price. Not not, not for a deal, not for a steal, for a price. For I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Our worship should cost us something. It should be a gift that we give to Jesus. We, we should worship God in the same way Jesus said we are to love God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We worship Him with all of who we are. That means that when we come to worship, we come ready to give Jesus our undivided attention. We come ready to expend some energy and time on Him. We come ready to give the best of ourselves to Him in worship and in praise. Worship is not about altitude. It's about attitude. Worship is not about usefulness, it's about extravagance. And third, worship is about being, not doing. It's about being. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, there's a story. Jesus and his disciples are traveling and he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Now, this is the same Mary and Martha whose brother Lazarus, Jesus, will later raise from the dead. So this is a, a dear family to him. So Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to him teach. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. You ever feel that way? And especially at Christmas, you know, it's like you're in there working in the kitchen and everybody's sitting around and somebody come in here and help me out. That's kind of what she was feeling at that moment. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you, you are so worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. and It will not be taken away from her. So, so here's Martha. She's, she's busy working in the kitchen. kitchen. She, she wants to be a gracious host to Jesus and his followers. That's a laudable goal, right? I mean, we, we would praise her for that. that. That's a good thing to want to do. But she wanted Jesus to rebuke Mary for not helping her. And instead of correcting Mary, Jesus rebuked Martha. Mary was content to sit in the presence of Jesus, to listen to what he had to say, to, to be close to him. Martha wanted to be busy in the other room, doing things for Jesus. Mary, Jesus said, had chosen the better thing. Now, again, worship isn't about being efficient. It's not about being productive. It isn't about what we do or accomplish for Jesus. Worship is about who we are being with and for Jesus. 
about being. At the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, right after his baptism in the Jordan River, as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened, uh, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and God the Father spoke and he said this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now this is before Jesus uttered a single teaching, hadn't preached a sermon yet. It's before Jesus did his first miracle. It's before Jesus called his first disciple. Before Jesus did any of this, For God the Father, God the Father was pleased with him because of who he was, not because of what he did. And the same is true for us. God is pleased with us, not for what we do. He doesn't love us for what we do for him. He loves us because of who we are as his children. John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. So before we are servants of God, we are to be friends of God. We are to be children of God. And worship is a way that we can simply be in God's presence as His children, as His friends, together with the family of God, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, just being His children, loving Him and praising Him and listening to Him and thanking Him. Before we can serve God, and God does want us to serve, But before we can serve God, we must worship God. Before He calls us to be His servants, He calls us to be His children, His sons and His daughters and His friends. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about being a friend of God? Is somebody your friend because they do stuff for you? You're not a very good friend if that's the truth, right? If you're only friends with people who do stuff for you, you're not a good friend. God's the best friend that you can have. He's not your friend just because you do stuff for Him. He's your friend because He loves you. He created you. Jesus died for you. He longs to spend eternity with you just for who you are. Finally, worship is uh, is about believing, not seeing. Worship is about believing, not seeing. Just as it's about being, not doing. It's about believing, not seeing. Now, I'm not going to read this whole story. It's in John chapter 9. It's a whole chapter, so I'm just going to kind of summarize it here for us. But in John chapter 9, we read the story of a man that was blind from birth. And Jesus and his disciples come upon this man, and Jesus heals him, restores the man's sight. And so the man is going around, and he can see, and he's, he's, he's leaping, he's praising, and, and Jesus and his disciples quickly move away. And, and the man doesn't quite know who it was who healed him. And so his friends keep saying, how did this happen? How did you get your sight back? How how did you get it back? He'd never had it. He was blind from birth. How is it that you see? And he says, the man they call Jesus healed me. He touched me. And I could see. And that's all he could say. When when they asked where this Jesus was, he simply says, I don't know. And that really becomes the refrain throughout this story. When people ask, you know, where is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. He's dragged before the Sanhedrin the Jewish high council, and they question him and grill him on it. He says, I don't know. I don't know. They finally expel him from the synagogue, thinking that he's just being stubborn. This newly healed, formerly blind man doesn't know much about Jesus. Now, he does say that he must be a prophet. He kind of guesses that. He does say he must be a man from God. Look what he did, right? But other than that, he doesn't know anything about Jesus. Finally, he does tell them, one thing I do know, 
Here's, here's what I do know definitively. I was blind. I met Jesus, and now I can see. That's what I do know. This man was no biblical scholar. He was no uh, you know, student of the world, had no biblical training, never went to a Sunday school class, never went to seminary or anything like that. He gets kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus finds him out in the street and comes to him and asks him if he believes in the Messiah. And the man says, well, sir, I would if I knew who he was. And Jesus said, I am the one who healed you, and I am the Messiah. And look what it says in verse 38. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Again, this man's knowledge of Scripture was minimal. His knowledge of Jesus was next to nothing. But he encountered Jesus. His life was changed. He was blind. He met Jesus, and now he could see. Transformation had occurred in his life. And what was his response to that transformation? He worshipped. He gave his worship to Jesus. Now, does God want us to grow in our understanding of who he is? Yes. Does God want us to, to read and study and memorize and meditate upon his word? Definitely. But we must understand that God's revelation to us and our worship of him isn't about information. It's about transformation. It's not about what we know up here. It's about what, what works out in our lives from our heart to our hands. Worship isn't about seeing and understanding. It's about believing and trusting, putting our faith in Jesus. That brings us back to the wise men. The wise men were magi. Okay? Magi, that's the same word we get magic, magician from. They were these uh, superstitious Pagan Gentile studiers of the stars. They studied astrology, right? I mean, I mean, I mean they, they, they believed in sort of this alignment of stars and planets dictated our fates kind of stuff. How much do you think they knew about the biblical promise of a Messiah? What was their understanding of who Jesus really was and what he came to do? Probably not very much. Probably not much. Yet they still undertook this long expensive, dangerous journey to Bethlehem. And in doing so, they themselves became fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 63 says, Nations will come to your light. Kings to your shining brightness. And Isaiah 49.6, God is, is speaking of Jesus. He says, It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob. Restoring the protected ones of Israel. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is going to restore Israel. He's going to protect the tribes. But that's not enough. I will also make you a light for the nations. To be my salvation, not just in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. The wise men were the ends of the earth. The wise men were the nations. They were the kings coming to see the brightness of Jesus. They didn't understand all the implications of this. But they were drawn to Jesus. They came in faith. They came at great cost. They bowed in humble worship. They gave to Him their gifts. And I believe that in that moment of worship, they were transformed. Not by what they saw, not by what they understood, but what they came to believe. And why do I think they were transformed? Because they then heard God speak to them. 
And they obeyed what God said, even though it was a risk to their own life. They went against the express wishes of King Herod. And if you know King Herod, he was a wicked man who wasn't above taking out anybody that displeased him. And they were willing to risk their lives to protect this holy child. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Do you believe in him? Do you bring to him your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? You don't have to have all the answers figured out. You, 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 you can come to Jesus and still have questions. You can come to Jesus and still have things you don't quite understand. That's not what he asks of you. He asks of you to surrender your life to him. To put your faith and your trust in him. And then you'll be changed. Then you'll be made new. Then you will come to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Maybe, maybe you've been serving God all your life. You've been in church, you've been serving God all your life, but you've never really taken the time to consider whether you're His child. Are you His son? Are you His daughter by faith? Yes, God calls us to serve. God calls us to give. But as I said, He always calls us to simply be His children in love and worship to Him first. We can get so wrapped up in what we do for God that we forget about what God did for us. We forget that He did that just so He could know us and we could know Him. Worship isn't about you. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's certainly not about getting results. It's all about lavishing love and praise on the only one who is worthy to receive it. Not only is Jesus the object of our worship, He's the subject of our worship. Our worship is about and it's for Him. He is the song that we sing. And in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I ask you to come and respond to Him this morning. Bring to Him your treasures. Bring to Him your gifts. You may say, David, I don't have gifts like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's not what Jesus requires. He requires your heart. Broken, bruised, damaged, full of shame, guilt, despair, sinful. He says, bring it to me. Bring me your heart. Whatever condition it is, bring your questions, bring your doubts. Lay them at Jesus' feet and receive his gift of forgiveness. Eternal life, new life, a fresh start. He wants to come and dwell in your heart. And let you experience life the way God intended it to always be. That's what Jesus asks you to do today. Receive by faith His grace, His peace, His joy, His hope. Maybe you need to do that this morning. If you've never come in faith to Jesus Christ, if you've never acknowledged your sin as these children have done, if you, if you never acknowledged your sin, your need for a Savior, and said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins and come and live in my heart, I invite you to do that today. That's the gift that Jesus wants from you. He wants you to give Him your heart. Will you do that this morning? Those of us that belong to Jesus, that are Christians, again, we've got to make sure that our priorities are right. And you may say, well, David, you know, I serve in the nursery and I serve on this committee and I do this and I come and I help set this stuff up and I do all this stuff and that's great. But if we're not careful, we can allow all that activity we do for God to mask the fact that we don't really have a very close walk with God. He wants you to focus on your love for Him, your trust in Him, 
What kind of relationship do you have with him? Father to child, friend to friend. Maybe this morning you come and renew your life to him today and say, I don't want to just be your servant, I want to be your child. Help me to grow in my walk with you. Help me to love you more and to know you more. Whatever God has laid on your heart today, let's be like those wise men. Let's take a step of faith. Let's come out and let's be obedient. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us, for who you are. You are a holy God, a God who is awesome, a God who, who we rightly should fear, but you're also a loving God. You're our creator, but you're also our savior. You long to be our father and our friend. And if there's anyone today that needs to take that first step of faith and say, Jesus, I've made a mess of my life. I've tried doing this on my own. I've tried to do all this good stuff to please you. And I I realize now that none of that's going to work. I need Jesus. I need that gift of grace. I need that free gift to come into my life and make me whole and make me new. I pray they would do that today. Father, whatever you're speaking to any of our hearts, Lord, may we be obedient. May we respond, not just in this moment. But as we go out of this place into this world this week, Lord, you're going to bring people into our path that we can help, that we can pray with and for, that we can invite to church, that we can share the gospel with. May we be obedient to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.